Hey, 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 what is going on, Cube fam? Hope you're all doing well. It is your boy, Bez Barami, coming at you guys with another episode. This one is jam-packed, guys. I want you to really listen closely. I want you to replay it as many times as you can. If you even need be, go ahead and grab a pencil, some paper, and let's start jotting some notes. We're going to be talking about the macro economy, specifically as it relates to the United States. Okay? You might hear some paper ruffling. You guys know I'm old school. You know I come prepared to these things. So I'm going to be going through a lot of notes just to make sure I touch each and every single point and all the data that comes with it. So this is also going to be two parts here. Okay? Uh, the first part is most likely going to be issued to the general public. But I can guarantee you the second part will be for the subscribers as we talk about the first part and then how do we allocate our portfolios uh, for what I'm going to talk about. How do we allocate our portfolios uh, as a result of the current economic data and where we th see things heading. So obviously that second part is going to be for the, uh, the Cube subscribers. I'll definitely throw that in the vault when this is all said and done. So there's going to be a part one and a part two. Okay, let's get into it, guys. The first thing I want to talk about here is a trend that I'm noticing, and I'm not sure it's getting as much love as it should be, or as much attention, I really should say, on Bloomberg and CNBC and, and things of this nature. Uh, and, it, it, and it's very, very important. So, because right now what's taking over the headlines has been China trade war, and I get it. It's completely understandable why it is. Uh, this is obviously very important that both countries lock this down, um, hopefully in sooner rather than later. Um, but what I really want to talk about here is QE, quantitative easing. For those who are not too familiar, I did talk about it a little bit in one of my uh, past episodes. Uh, I believe it was monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, quantitative easing is pretty much full-blown expansionary monetary policy. Um, and this is something that was implemented during the financial crisis or post-financial crisis uh, in hopes of getting the economy back on its feet where the government, uh, excuse me, where the Federal Reserve pretty much jumped in and uh, scooped up the heck out of U.S. Treasuries and other securities, pumped money into the market to artificially lower rates, okay, uh, bailed, bailed out the pretty much the, the too-big-to-fail banks and all that kind of stuff, okay? So what I, what I want to talk about here is that was QE. As far as we were concerned, QE was over, okay? And... The Fed wants us to believe that it still is over, and I'm not sure that that's true anymore. And I say this because, obviously, the Fed has already cut rates twice this year. So now the target Fed funds rate is 1.75 to 2%. Okay, that's the range it's being held at right now. Okay, this has already been taken down 50 basis points uh, since uh, 2019, twice this year, and it's already starting to look like a third one's coming in the next several weeks. Okay, and honestly, it would not shock me if it's 50 basis points, but we'll see. I, I don't know right now. I can't, I'm having trouble personally, along with many others, gauging what that exact drop is going to be. Um, a lot of the market watch tools and uh, other indicators are implying that there's a 70% chance that the Fed cuts again, okay, for the third time this year. Um, most are believing it's going to be a 25 basis point cut, which would take us to that one point. To 5, a 1.5 to 1.75 uh, percentage range, okay? If it was a 50 basis point cut, I meant to say, is a 1.25 to 1.5% range. 
Okay, so not only is that kind of like a form of, of QE in, it, in and of itself, but if you guys have been watching the news lately, you've also seen a little bit of talk about uh, these the repo market, you know? And this is not like, oh, they're towing my car out front. <laughs> this is uh, repurchase agreements, okay? The, the, this is the repurchase market. Uh, it pretty much is where uh, a lot of the banks, okay, they lend to each other. And, and this rate's closely tied to the Fed funds rate. Okay, this is where they lend to each other, usually overnight. It's very, very small, uh, short windows, short maturities. Uh, generally, like here's a quick example. Let's say uh, Goldman Sachs needs some money real quick. They'll go ahead and knock on Morgan Stanley's door and raise some quick money. Uh, they'll put up the collateral like U.S. Treasuries uh, and then they'll pay it back with interest and then the collateral will be returned to them. Uh, it's usually considered pretty safe here. Okay, so this is generally how it works. You know, they just helping each other out, cover some, uh, maybe some reserve ratios they need to meet, or just some maybe day to day operations or something of this of this sort. Okay, and they just they help each other out. Obviously, the bank gets something out of it. They get a quick little, you know, bait, couple basis points, whatever it happens to be. Right now, the um, the rate in the repo market is around one point nine two percent. So a little bit above the Fed funds rate. Uh, right, but right in that range, um, but a little bit above the the, the middle point. So, what did what what just recently happened? Well, for the first time, well, it happened a little in the end of 2018, okay, but not this much. But it it spiked from like 1.8, 1.9% to 10% overnight, massive, over 5x increase overnight in the repo uh, market, okay. Now, people are not saying what it is. They're just saying that the Fed has been diving in to the repo market now. That's all the talk's been about because no one can really pinpoint why, why that happened. The last time it happened that high was in 2008, okay? Um, and so far, since they've uh, gotten involved since the end of September, uh, they've already poured $330 billion into the repo market, okay, to, to get the rates back down, normalize activity. And not only that, but uh, they've also just announced that they're going to continue this until November 4th. They're going to monitor this, put money into the market, make sure that things are going stable, that liquidity is right. So what exactly is really going on right now? Pure speculation. But I think one of the big banks is struggling big time right now. I think that's what this is about. Obviously, if the interest rate's going up, they're commanding that interest rate because somewhere there's a crack. Somewhere someone needs to be compensated for that risk. The reason that those rates are so low is not just because they're short term, but they're also collateralized. And usually you believe the counterpart, the counterparty is pretty, you know, liquid or at least sufficient uh, to pay that that little that short term like short term loan back. Okay, so why did it spike like that? My my opinion and pure speculation, you know, everyone seems to be afraid to say or guess. I'm going to go ahead and guess. I think it's Deutsche Bank. I think Deutsche Bank might be having some serious liquidity issues. And that was the reason for the quick jump up. I could be wrong. I have no statistical, you know, backing on that. I just think that there's one of these major banks is struggling mightily right now. We obviously know Deutsche is struggling. I don't know if it's to this extent. But if I had to pick one of the names, 
uh, I'm going to go with them. And I'm going to say that uh, somewhere along the lines, one of them is really, really struggling right now. And I'm going DB. Um, I could be way off. I could, I could be completely wrong here. This could have just been a weird outlier. I don't think really a market this liquid. Okay. The, the, the repo market does trillions of dollars of action every single day. It is a very active market. Okay. So for something to just go up five fold like that is not some kind of glitch. It's not some kind of glitch. And I'm also going to say this because, uh, if it was just a, a, a little bit of glitch, the Fed already got in there, normalized it. Why are they not out yet? Why are they still sticking around till now November 4th, uh, approximately six weeks when it's all said and done? If they don't extend it even more so, okay? This is this is what I, I'm getting a little worried about. Now, see, when this was like originally announced in late September, I was, I was concerned. I was like, hmm, that's weird. And then I started watching it develop and watching it develop. And then I'm hearing all this, you know, prolong of it. And then Powell, the Fed chair, is saying now that we're not doing QE. This is not QE. You know, we're just normalizing things. But let me tell you something. This is pretty much QE. I don't understand how it's not. The, they are getting involved in the market again. Instead of unwinding the balance sheet. So guys, when I spoke about um, QE, the Fed was buying up all these treasuries, okay? You buy them up, okay? You force you force the uh, the prices up so the yields come down, so interest rates go down, okay? What do they do with all these securities? It's on their balance sheet now. It got to as high as $4.5 trillion almost, give or take, okay? And then at the beginning of the year, it was, okay, we're going to slowly start to unwind the balance sheet. And they began doing that. And, and they said until, you know, things... Uh, you know, we get to that normalized rate area. That that's that's so. They never really put a number on it, but this normalized interest rate environment. Okay, which I don't even know if anyone knows it what it is anymore. And in fact, the argument I'm going to make here today is that maybe the normalized rate is down here in the zero to one percent range. I mean, you look across the the globe, a lot of countries are negative rates. You know, uh. So what is, that's a great, it's a great question I want to ask her. What is, and I don't personally don't have the, the answer for it, but I will say it's, it's not in the four or five, 6% range anymore. It's not. And I'll explain why. So they're saying now, and I just want to recap because I know this can be overwhelming. I know this can be a little much for some people. And even if you're familiar with the markets, uh, this is still sometimes, you can get a little rusty and you need to be, be reminded a little bit here and there. So I just want to go through it slowly. So the Fed got involved in the repo market, okay? They're not unwinding their balance sheet anymore. The balance sheet is beginning to grow again and they're cutting interest rates. That literally sounds exactly like QE that we saw after the financial crisis all the way through until, until a couple years ago. And just to add a little more clarity... They got it down to about 3.7 trillion that balance sheet. Okay, so they got it down a little bit. The weird thing I'd argue here is rates rates didn't move up much. Rates really really did not move up much uh, as they unwound uh, unwound the balance sheet. You would think it might have had like a greater impact, but it it really didn't. Uh, but so it got to 3.7 trillion, and now we're back up to 3.9 trillion. Okay, another 200 to 300 billion dollars 
uh, poured right back into it and, the, you know, buying up the treasuries. And so now the balance sheet is back up to $3.9 trillion. Okay, now let me give you guys some context. Uh, QE was broken up into three stages. All right, QE1, QE2, QE3. When we initially had the, uh, the crisis and the whole shock, the Fed stepped in. At, the, at that time, the balance sheet was around $880 billion or so, give or take. And they, they pumped those numbers up to $2.1, $2.2 trillion in a matter of three months. Okay, so they, they upped it $1.2 trillion in three months. Okay, that was QE. That was called QE, the first stage of it in response to the financial crisis. I just told you in a matter of a couple weeks, we just upped it 200 to 300 billion, the balance sheet. So in QE1, it was 1.2 trillion over the course of three months. In two weeks, we just bumped it up 200 to 300 billion, but it's not QE? Really? You see, sometimes I think the Fed, and not sometimes, most of the time, the Fed is, their job is to act like things are cool. They don't want to spur, you know, cause any kind of pandemonium. They don't want people to get nervous. It's very important for, you know, sentiment to be, you know, good. Um, but th this is alarming to me, guys. I got to say, this is alarming. Um, and, you know, what, what, it, what this does here, and I've been listening to tons of economists and, uh, and just doing tons and tons of research, reading articles, reading reports. Uh, like I said, guys, I really, really like to do my homework. And it's something I'm just obsessed about. And I think what the minority is saying right now is pretty damn true. And that is the Fed kind of blew their cover a little bit. What I mean by this is it was always, okay, we're going to keep interest rates super low to spend to spur inflation, to get growth back, uh, you know, boost GDP, and we'll, ri we'll raise rates and unwind the balance sheet when the economy's ready, okay? So we're, we're over here thinking, okay, you know what? That's, that's fine, you know, we'll just do with this for now. It's just temporary. So then we go ahead and bump up interest rates. We begin to unwind the balance sheet. And in less than a year, okay, we're already going back and reversing it. So, can the the U.S. market, the U.S. economy, actually handle higher rates? This is a legitimate question. Can we actually raise rates again? Can we get back to the 5-6% range? I don't think so. Or at least I'm not really confident we can. All right, let's just go through some other economic data right now. Manufacturing production down to back to back months, minus 5% year over year growth, followed by minus 4% year over year growth. New factory orders down 0.1% year over year. Okay. Bankruptcies across the United States came in at 22,483 companies in Q2, highest since Q1 of 2018. This is still pretty low in the grand scheme of things, but, but I mean, if you're going to compare it to 08, 09, uh, hell yeah, it's, it's going to be low compared to that. But it is, uh, looks like it's curling back upwards a little bit right now. It's not, I'm not saying it's something to be concerned about, but, you know, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, business confidence, six straight months, it's down to 47.8. Okay? And the deficit, let's talk about this. A lot of people get this confused. The deficit and national debt. 
okay? If the deficit, look, the deficit right now just came in at $984 billion. That is 4.7% of GDP, which is the highest since 2012. And it's up $205 billion from 2018, which marks a 26% jump year over year. Pretty alarming stats, guys. Not going to lie here. So what does this tell us? The deficit, every year, it's going to, if, if you're at a deficit, it's going to, that difference, okay, is going to add to the national debt. That's how it goes. So if we were, if we run into a $1 trillion deficit for 2019, we added a trillion dollars in debt to the, to the overall number, of, uh, which is around, what, $22 trillion right now? And speaking of that, speaking of the actual national debt, I actually want to talk about that a little bit here. Let me flip some pages. Okay. The national debt stands around $22 trillion. It just went up about, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 million since I said that. Um, Six trillion of it is owed to other U.S. government agencies. Okay. The other 16.8 trillion is 29% to foreign governments, 15% to investment institutions, uh, 12% to the Federal Reserve itself, 11% to individuals. Okay. And 4% to state and local governments amongst some other, you know, and then the rest is other. So, also, the maturity on this debt is 70 months, so almost six years of maturity. Now, I want to tell you guys the kind of, perhaps, cycle that we're in right now. The deficit, okay, more is going out than is more, more expense, that's, expenses are greater than, than revenue. That's what that is, all right? And what's a big expense? Interest on debt is a big expense, all right? And that, we're, we're growing the debt which means that the expenses keep rising too. You know, on top of that, we cut taxes, so that kind of lowers that a little bit, and that's a whole other thing I can talk about another time. So here's what happens. If the, let's just say the Fed doesn't cut, all right? The Fed does not cut rates. This debt's got to roll over. Some of it matures, then you roll it, roll it over into newer debt. That newer debt is going to have higher interest payments. The government's got to find the money to make those payments. All right, so the deficit gets worse as the interest rises, which means that the government's got to take on more debt, which causes more printing of money, which then causes more inflation, which then causes higher rates to stop that inflation, which then leads to more interest payments, which then leads to issuing more debt, which leads to a larger deficit because of higher interest payments, which then leads to higher inflation. And then you see that you see how it can get into a, a really bad trend here. Do you see how this can really, really interrupt things and the kind of, you know, circular, vicious cycle that we're in right now? And then I'm going to go ahead and talk about some other things that, that I'm noticing that, that, are, that are not making me too happy about the economy right now. Uh, money supply, the M2 money supply, which is your cash, you know, checking deposits, savings deposits. You know, money market securities, mutual funds, that's on the rise. That's ripping higher, okay? Um, that's something we want to keep a close eye on. Services PMI down to 50.9. That's slid to a few-year lows now. Obviously, you have the U.S. and China terrorists, which is not helping anyone at this point. Um, you could say what, we could say what we want about whether it's, you know, the right move. Um, I don't like to get into politics. It's not worth it. I like to stick to the, the economy. So... Either way, I think any everyone can agree that getting a deal done is 
pretty beneficial for everybody at this point, okay? Um, so that's that's obviously cause, causing a stir. That's also killing consumer confidence because it's always making headlines and having people nervous and unsure what to do and where to buy products. And it, it, just, it just disrupts the whole supply chain, all right? We got student debt, which is a huge bubble right now. You got corporate debt. Corporate debt's bubble's huge, especially if you look at like some of the junk-rated uh, corporate debt. Skyrocketed, okay? These, I, I must have listed like 14, 15 different uh, stats here about things that I'm not really happy I'm seeing. Now, let me tell you something. This does not mean that all the data is bad because I want to touch on some good things now, okay? Let's talk about building permits. Home sales are on the rise, Okay. Housing starts all up big. Obviously, that has probably a lot to do with the, the lower mortgage rates and people refinancing and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's helping the real estate market a little bit, which is good. You got full-time employment sitting at all-time highs, okay, of 131.1 million people. Part-time employment right now is not at its all-time highs. It currently stands at 27 million people, which is down from the average of 2010 to 2018 uh, of like 28 million. Uh, it's still up big, but it's not um, at its all-time highs the way full-time employment is. So that's something to keep note of. Uh, actual amount of unemployed people right now stands at 5.7 million, uh, which is its lowest since 2001. The participation, labor participation rates starting to creep up a little bit, which is good, uh, because obviously everyone makes the argument about, um, oh yeah, unemployment's you know so low because people are considered discouraged, so they're not counted as part of the denominator. So therefore, it artificially you know changes the numbers a little bit. There's some truth to that, but overall, labor market's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, wage growth slipped under three percent, which I'm not happy about, but two point eight, two point nine percent is still pretty healthy. Uh, inflation around the two percent. Core inflation's around two point four percent. That excludes food and energy. So that's a little on the high side. So you know, if you really look at the wage growth versus you know inflation, it's slow. It's partially, partially uh, outpacing it. Um, we look at consumer spending; that's growing very well. Retail sales are up 4.1 percent year over year. Disposable incomes on the rise. And here's an interesting thing: household debt to GDP is at 75 percent. That is down from the 100 percent range it was in nearly a decade ago. So something's interesting happening here. I feel like, you know. I think the I feel like the consumer kind of learned their lesson a little bit from 2008, but it seems the government and the corporations haven't, because their freaking balance sheets have skyrocketed. But when you compare household debt, okay, to um, personal savings, disposable income, these are all on the rise, and of course, like I just said, GDP, it's actually not looking that bad. Credit card delinquencies are pretty low. Uh, mortgage delinquencies, like being 60 to 90 days late on your mortgage, very low. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm just looking at the data here and quite honestly, I, I'm really of the mindset at this point that the, the actual consumer learned their lesson, made the fixes. Okay. Well, for instance, and here, this is right to my point, just some more data for you guys, household savings increased to 8.1%. This is a steady rise since 2005. That's pretty solid, I gotta say. So, so yeah, I'm thinking that, and I'm looking at it, and this is what I'm interpreting. 
the government and corporations absolutely loaded up on these low interest rates. Whereas, you know, the consumer obviously has been taking advantage of it, refinancing, doing what they have to do, but they're saving more. They're spending more. They're spending a good amount, but they're growing disposable income. They're growing savings. They're, they're growing their net worths. And it looks like the consumer's in a better position now and learned their lesson, but maybe not the same can be said about the corporations. Now, I want to make another point here. I spoke a lot about monetary policy on the fiscal policy side of things. Lightly, just a little light touch on this. So obviously we dropped the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21%. Okay, excellent, health businesses. But here's the freaking problem and why I'm so mad. Most corporations just spent all that excess capital that was raised, all that excess cash, and they spent it on share buybacks as opposed to like really putting it to use. Okay, as we know, share buybacks have been on an absolute tear. Guys, please go back to that episode that I did on share buybacks. You definitely want to check that one out. That's also super, super loaded with information. I don't want to rehash it and uh, repeat myself. But uh, when I when I think of all of these things right now, I can't help but be pretty pissed off, honestly. Um, because now we're in this like, where the dog's pretty much chasing his tail. So if the Fed raises rates, okay, not only do, do they get screwed because how much debt is on their balance sheet, Okay, now the corporations will have trouble refinancing their debt because they're levered up to their freaking noses in debt as well. So now I'm, I'm just looking at the entire situation here and it's got me a little bit concerned. It really, really does. There obviously are some pockets of, of good data and I'm not saying this is doomsday. I'm just saying that, look, GDP is still around 2% now, okay? We obviously aren't in a recession right now, uh, but if you do look at Germany, their one quarter, like I mentioned in the Q&A episode that we just that just passed, they're one quarter away from being in a recession. You look all around the globe, negative interest rates everywhere. So here's the question I really want to ask now. If we do get into this spiral, this downward spiral, the dollar is going to take a hit, okay? But, but do we see the U.S. equity markets take a hit? Now, I can't believe the market would be this stupid, but I'm pretty sure everyone understands that this is pretty much QE happening right now, okay? So with that being said, does the market take notice and say, okay, maybe the economy is not as strong as we thought. The foundation is not as sturdy as, it, as we thought it was because we thought we can just increase rates, unwind the balance sheet, and normalize everything. Because that was what the Fed had. They could always say, okay, yeah, when we're ready, when we're ready. Okay, they gave it a shot. Now they're pulling back on their words. Now they're kind of going back to the old way of QE. Because we're realizing, oh shit, maybe we couldn't handle those, those rates. We're that sensitive to just a, you know, a 2%, 2.5% interest rate. So does the market say, oh shit, the ground beneath our feet is not as strong as we thought it was? Or do they say... Where else are you going to put your money, man? Negative rates everywhere else. At least we have positive rates here in the States for the time being. And you know what? Lower interest rates for longer means corporations can keep refinancing, keep loading up their balance sheets, and elevate asset prices. Which one happens? Market reacted pretty good the following day after the Fed announced that they're going to be, you know, adding to their balance sheet, the treasuries. 
but I yeah, I wasn't able to really truly um, dissect if that was because of that news or because on the same time, uh, at the same time, uh, the news hit that, you know, things are getting a little bit better on the trade side with US and China. So I can't say for a fact that it was a direct response to the Fed or if it was a direct response to China or if it was a blend of both. Okay, so now I'm going to get into part two. Okay, it's going to be another episode. And I'm going to talk about, because there's a lot of context with where the cube folio is right now and where I want to pretty much uh, make some adjustments and what I'm planning for as we head into the end of this year and as we go into 2020. Obviously, you guys know we've had a spectacular 2019 thus far, outperforming all the major indices, and it's been excellent. And now I want to talk about how we can maybe make some you know, edits, make some s slight changes. I don't want to do anything too drastic, but I want to start shaping it at, at kind of the way you guys have already been seeing to the subscribers. So move that into now, how do we pretty much prepare the portfolio for 2020 and what seems to be a different economic backdrop. All right, guys. So real quick, I just want to recap a, a little bit here. I know that I'm at 30 minutes. This can be a lot to take in. I'm not trying to overwhelm you guys. I'm also not trying to scare you guys. I'm just presenting the data that perhaps isn't getting as much light as it should be. Okay. We obviously have some pockets of solid, solid data, but it's not all dandy. There are some other areas here that are just alarming. As I mentioned, I'm just saying here and the, the core of this podcast was to really highlight that I do believe we are back to expansionary monetary policy through quantitative easing and that quantitative tightening QT did not last nearly as long as any of us were led to believe when the fed was talking about tightening up the balance sheet and, and unwinding it and tightening up and bringing up rates. I don't think they thought it was going to last less than a year. I don't think anybody thought that. And I think they're very surprised and I think they're trying to keep their cool a little bit. I don't know how much of an effect Trump is having on Powell and if he's staying truly independent, but they keep saying they're data-driven, data-driven, data-driven. And if that's the true case, then, and they want to get ahead of a possible, uh, you know, recession, then so be it. You know, uh, Powell wants higher inflation, higher inflation. Look, you know, that's great and all, but where where do we draw a line? Inflation's around this two percent. It's around the two percent right now. It's it's there. It's at that two percent target. What more inflation do we want right now? I'm a I'm a true believer in it being healthy where it is. Okay, you know things. You know if you take out the food and and the, and and the um uh and energy and things of that nature, you you're you're looking at almost two and a half percent inflation. That is healthy. Okay. Any higher, it's going to be very difficult for the consumer. It really is. So these are just some things I'm really thinking about right now. And I really wanted to bring it to light to you guys. And to really just present the information to you so you have a better idea of how you can take this information, decide what, what you want to do with it, okay? But uh, the things I do want to highlight here in part one is, where do we go from here? It's looking like normalized rates is going to be in this 0% to 2% range. If not lower, maybe even a little tighter than that. Zero maybe to 1.5%. Is that the new normal going forward? How do we ever get back up? 
How do we ever get back up without the whole, you know, cycle, the vicious cycle I just spoke about? What is the Fed's plan here? I will argue that there's some things that can be done on the fiscal side still. There's still some fiscal ammunition. But we're running out of monetary ammunition. Because we're, we've already spent a ton of it. And now we're pretty much reloading the clip. After what? After such a short period of time. Maybe we hike too fast. But off of what base? Off of zero. You know, it's... In the grand scheme of things, rates are still low and we couldn't really handle it too well. And that repo incident really, really is concerning to me. It is. Because that doesn't happen too often. It's happened three times, including 2008. Okay, twice now in the last year. And the fact that the Fed's still hanging around for this long, you know, six weeks monitoring it, and already up the, the balance sheet by two, three hundred billion not calling it QE just raises a little eyebrows. It's a head scratcher. I'm not saying it's end of the world, but they, you know, it's it's something I'm just talking about to bring to light. How do we normalize rates? Do we ever normalize rates? Are we in a different, com a completely different economic time period now? Okay, where these low interest rates is the future? Is it how how does Japan get their rates up with with their aging economy? Okay, and borderline deflation. How about China? How do emerging markets react to this? These are all things we're going to talk about in the group chat. No problem at all. And I'm going to bring to light a little bit in part two. Then you throw in Brexit. Then you throw in Germany. You throw in the weak Eurozone. You throw in the problems in Venezuela and the rest of pretty much LATAM, you know, and, and Mexico and all of these things. You throw in tariffs. You throw in all of this uncertainty. And if anyone tells you they know exactly what's going on, full, they're full of shit. I'm just saying these are head scratchers. It's not great news. I'll tell you that much. It's not like, oh, this is something to be happy about. I'm just wondering if when we look back in 20, 30 years, this time period, what do we call this time period? And how do we get out of it? How do we get back to what was, was, what was once considered normal? Or like I'm saying, is this the new normal? And if so, what does that mean for our portfolios? What does that mean for the labor market? What does that mean for so many things? How do we look at fixed income now? Is all we're going to get now in fixed income, you know, one and a half, two percent, two and a half percent, like negative rates? Is that where we're going now? Like what if GDP continues to slip? What is what does Powell do then? Because like I said, if GDP slips and they start buying up securities again, treasuries, then the debt grows. When the debt grows, the deficit gets bigger because of the recurring interest. Now you got you got to roll forward all these interest payments now. And you're just taking on more and more debt and more debt, which leads to more interest payments to be made. Which leads to more money being printed, which leads to more inflation. I already covered that. But this is what I'm saying, guys. I don't want to sound like I'm repeating myself. I'm really only doing it so you guys don't have to just keep clicking the rewind button. I'm, I just really want to just let it sink in because it takes time to understand, especially if you're newer to investing. It can be really overwhelming. You guys know, you can always shoot me an email, shoot me a DM, and I'll gladly assist you. Um, so yeah, guys, I want to I I leave it there. I want you to ponder upon these things. I really want you to think about these things 
and what it means for us going forward, what it means for the US dollar going forward, what it means for the general economy going forward, and whether this is just a new time period that we maybe have to get accustomed to. Maybe it's not as short-term as we thought. Perhaps lower rates, potentially negative rates, is something that will be on our plates for a very long time. I'm going to leave that with you guys. Think about it. Let's discuss it. And I'll talk to you all later. Hope you enjoyed.